Was the dead body of President Kennedy exposed to two autopsies on two separate occasions? If shenanigans and foul play were demonstrated by the documents released, why not table a lawsuit against the government hiding the information? What dark family secret compelled the filmmaker of the assassination to not discuss the video publicly or privately? What aspects of the case should researchers today place an emphasis in getting to the bottom of one of the most secret mysteries in American history? This week on the Global Research News Hour is the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. We will be spending the majority of the hour discussing the famous case with Jacob Hornberger, a longtime author and investigator of the 1960s event. Mr. Hornberger, in particular, explores the subject matter of two recent books he wrote on the assassination of the 35th President of the United States. On this week's program, JFK, 60 Years After His Death, Part 2, Encounters with Evil, Jacob Hornberger on the Conspiracy Against Kennedy. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 24th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Nene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The great land and waters for which settlers expressed gratitude came as a result of indigenous people who were stripped of their assets through promises and treaties that were not honored, resulting in colonialism and genocide. It is incumbent on descendants today to recognize the imbalance through history and pay reparations moving forward. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The iDNA platform can be used to create vaccines in two different ways. You can either grow the iDNA in a culture to produce the vaccine in the conventional way, or you can inject the iDNA directly into the recipient and allow the body to produce the live attenuated virus internally. The first human trials for an iDNA shot that codes for a live virus could begin as early as 2024. In early April 2023, microbiologist Kevin McKernan reported he'd discovered DNA fragments in the mRNA shots made by Pfizer and Moderna, raising concerns about the possibility of genomic integration, autoimmune diseases, and cancer. McKernan now reports having found a dose relationship between the load of DNA contamination and serious adverse events. 
That comes from the article, iDNA Vaccines to Generate Internal Virus Production, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted November 22nd, originally published on the Mercola website. The top takeaways are that, one, Western financial and military aid is indeed evaporating, two, Ukraine is now freaking out and fear-mongering about the future. Three, political rivalries in that country are intensifying. Four, the West is indeed pressuring Ukraine to enter into peace talks with Russia aimed at freezing the conflict. And five, organic grassroots protests might break out across Ukraine sometime soon. This isn't how everything was supposed to be. However, since Kiev promised an altogether different future. It seems like so long ago, but just six months back, the West was hyping everyone up about what to expect from Kiev's then-upcoming counteroffensive, which was supposed to be a Klauswitzian masterstroke that would showcase the West's military superiority. Instead of Russian being chased back into its pre-2014 borders, however, the New York Times admitted in late September that, quote, Russia now controls nearly 200 square miles more territory in Ukraine compared with the start of the year, unquote. Quite clearly, that one country on its own was able to withstand the proxy war onslaught of the, quote, more than 50 nations, unquote, that Biden recently boasted had joined the U.S. in arming Ukraine. That comes from the article, NATO's proxy war on Russia through Ukraine appears to be winding down, by Andrew Karibko, posted November 22nd, originally published on Andrew Karibko's newsletter. This Florida mom gave her seven-year-old daughter, Pfizer, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, and 10 days after the second Pfizer jab, the girl started having chest pain, rashes, joint pain, and now has an autoimmune disease for life, for which she is on steroids and immune modulators. This mother was tragically oblivious to the dangers and toxicity of COVID-19 mRNA vaccines in children and trusted corrupt and incompetent pediatricians and politicians. Now her daughter is disabled for life. I do appreciate that she had the courage to share the story. Not only are her daughter's symptoms not controlled by multiple medications, but she has no idea of the long-term consequences of this kind of immune system damage. That comes from the article, Seven-year-old Florida girl was given two Pfizer COVID-19 mRNA jabs, now has systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, and is on daily steroids, HCQ. By Dr. William Mackis, posted November 22nd, originally published on COVID Intel. JFK assassination was the result of a mind-boggling conspiracy hatched by a combination of people high in various institutions of the country, such as the CIA, FBI, Dallas Police Department, the Secret Service, oil billionaires, and the Mafia. All these forces were stacked against a peace-loving young president whose only crime 
was he wanted to end the Cold War with the Soviet Union, be friends with Cuba, and thus protect the world from nuclear holocaust. But the, quote, powers that be, unquote, didn't like it. So they got together, conspired, and brutally assassinated the president. If our government can kill our own president, who can they not kill? comes from the article, Kennedy Assassination, the Greatest Conspiracy Ever Conceived, by Shetanya Dave, posted November 22nd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is uh, Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour, and uh, I have a very special guest on. His name is Jacob G. Hornberger. Uh, he's the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. Uh, he was born and raised in Laredo, Texas, and received his BA in economics from Virginia Military Institute and his law degree from the University of Texas. And uh, he was a trial attorney for 12 years in Texas. Uh, he also was an adjunct professor at the University of Dallas, where he taught law and economics. And then in 1987, Mr. Hornberger left the practice of law to become a director of programs at the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, I know that uh, the Future of Freedom Foundation has a number of excellent topics on it. But uh, among them is a detailed examination into John Kennedy's murder. So, Jacob, I will just introduce you. I'll welcome you to the Global Research News Hour. It's a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. So, November 22nd, 2023, it is exactly 60 years since uh, it's 1 p.m. Dallas time. And 60 years ago at this time, media had transmitted the message that John F. Kennedy had been shot. I was wondering, do you remember precisely where you were and what you were doing at this moment 60 years ago? I do. <laughs> I, was, I was standing outside um, biology class waiting for it to start right before 1 p.m. when a fellow student came up and said that President Kennedy had been shot. And it's that recollection has stayed with me ever since. I think it has stayed with most everybody who learned about the shooting at that time. Yeah. And, and like, like there's a whole mode of uh, thinking like everybody around you was kind of like depressed or, or just, uh, just thrown for a loop. Didn't know what, how to handle it. Yeah. It was uh, just, everybody was in shock and nobody knew how to handle it. We waited for the, the teacher to show up. And I don't really remember what happened after that, whether they let out class or whether we attended class. The only recollection I have is that student coming up and telling me, <laughs> but I do recall everybody was just in shock. Yeah. Well, I guess they, they say that that was the, the moment where, uh, you know, innocence, the, the end of innocence for, uh, uh, America, that that's what they said. And, uh, but I, 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 yeah, I'm wondering just like when you decided to go from being a, 
you know, beyond being a shell-shocked individual, how are you de determined, okay, I'm going to examine this, Ken this Kennedy assassination? Um, well, it didn't actually happen till some, oh, you know, 30 years later. I, I, I had never heard that anybody was questioning the official version of what happened. And so when Oliver Stone's movie JFK was coming out, I thought it was just going to be a biography of John Kennedy. I, I didn't read any of the press accounts and the controversy swirling around the movie. So I walked into the movie theater thinking I'm just going to see a, a documentary or kind of a fictionalized account of John Kennedy. And I, you know, it just blew me away when I walked out of that theater that, that Stone was positing that the official narrative was wrong and deliberately wrong. And that this was actually a regime change operation on the part of the national security establishment. So uh, that was when I decided to start examining uh, the literature surrounding this controversy and, it led me on this journey to conclude that Stone was absolutely right, that this was a regime change operation on the part of the national security establishment. Well, I know the Future of Freedom Foundation has collected a lot of information uh, about the Kennedy assassination, uh, among other articles, you know, stuff on Afghanistan, the CIA and other things. But like I say, you yourself have published a few books of your own. Um, we should tackle the investigation from the vantage point that you are offering and, and maybe delve into some of the details. But one subject I would like to get into this topic first is the 2015 book that you wrote entitled The Kennedy Autopsy. And with, with all of the other flows, uh, flaws in the official story, why have you chosen to devote an entire book to what's wrong with the autopsy? Well, there were a lot of anomalies uh, with respect to the official story about what happened in Dealey Plaza during the assassination. And as I was reading the literature and the books, examining those anomalies and strange occurrences, you know, for example, all the, so many witnesses that said they were certain that a shot had come from the president's front um, and there in the grassy knoll. Uh, I never could be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the national security establishment had pulled this off. And I don't think in terms of conspiracy theories, I know that that's you know, a popular term, uh, one that the, the CIA actually popularized as part of their strategy to deactivate um, opposition to the official narrative. I think in terms of evidence, because that was the way I was trained to think in law school, and that was the way I, I thought in terms of when I was a lawyer, it, does the evidence establish beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened? And as much as I came to be convinced that the CIA and the Pentagon had orchestrated this assassination, it wasn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I knew that if I had to walk into court, I could never prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. But then I read a five-volume book by a man named Douglas Horn called Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. And Horn had served on the Assassination Records Review Board in the 1990s, and that was the official government agency that had been enacted in the wake of Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, to enforce what was called the JFK Records Act, which mandated that the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, the, the uh, Secret Service, all government agents had to finally release their secret 
assassination related records. And by the time I finished Horn's book, my conviction that this had been a regime change operation had gone beyond a reasonable doubt. But that was because Horn concentrated on the autopsy. And he established that beyond any reasonable doubt that this was a fraudulent autopsy. And that autopsy had been conducted by the military on the very evening of the assassination. So I concluded that if there is a fraudulent autopsy, and there's no doubt now with the evidence that came out, especially since the uh, JFK Records Act, that this was a fraudulent autopsy, there's no innocent explanation for it. There's just no possible innocent explanation to commit fraud on an autopsy. And that's what convicts the military establishment beyond a reasonable doubt of the assassination. So my book, The Kennedy Autopsy, which became the best seller for the Future of Freedom Foundation in our 34-year history, is actually a synopsis of Horn's book. Horn's book is not an easy read. It's a five-volume book, coffee table-sized, sometimes very technical. So I wanted people to be introduced to a very easily understood, very easily readable analysis of why this autopsy was fraudulent. And of course, understand the implications of that, that that necessarily meant that the military establishment had participated in the orchestration of the assassination itself. Because again, there is no innocent explanation once you establish a fraudulent autopsy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think you could talk about some of the points in the book, for example, that this uh, when the, the, they had a couple of doctors speaking, giving a, a public presentation. Like, I, I didn't know about this uh, at the time, but they were pr- talking about how the bullet went in the throat and came out the back of the uh, the skull. And, uh, you know, in, in a manner that suggests that you know, because the, the the hole of the back of the skull is a lot bigger than the uh, the hole the hole made by the bullet, and, and they they were open about this, and yet they managed to shut it down. And then there was also the point about uh, how uh, how how you had these individuals uh, taking the body into the uh, in into the uh, the morgue, not. Yeah, not at eight o'clock, which is the official story, but at six thirty, and then again at eight o'clock. So you just give us just a a brief explanation of those sorts of uh, things that have come out. Oh uh, a- yes, the the wounds um, in Dallas are critical to understanding the fraudulent nature of the autopsy. There were two wounds that the Dallas doctors noticed. Now keep in mind that. Parkland Hospital, Michael, in Dallas was, and I presume still is, one of the finest trauma hospitals in the in the country. They specialize in gunshot wounds. So all these doctors were well-trained in gunshot wounds. They'd already handled hundreds of gunshot wounds there at Parkland. And so there was a press conference immediately after the, uh, the president was declared dead uh, with Dr. Malcolm Perry and Dr. Kemp Clark. And Clark was head of neurology, I think, um, Perry was a was a resident uh, physician there, and they said there's two wounds. One was right in the front of the neck, which Perry said three times. This is an entrance wound. Now, how does he know it's an entrance wound? He's not a pathologist. He's there to treat the president. But they understood that when a bullet enters a person's body, it enters with a very small hole. 
So they, they've come to understand what entrance wounds look like. And they thought they had, then there was a massive hole in the back of President Kennedy's head and was called the occipital region of the skull. It's, it's essentially in the, the direct back or maybe a little bit to the right in the back. And they, they didn't know what, what caused that wound. They, they thought that maybe the bullet had exited there, but um, they, those were the, the two critically important wounds. If you go to Bethesda National Medical Center where the autopsy was held, the result of that is you have an autopsy photograph that shows the back of Kennedy's head to be intact. There's no hole there. And then they claimed at Bethesda, or later the Warren Commission claims, that a bullet entered the rear of the neck, came out the front of the neck. So what the Dahls doctors had said was an interest wound, they converted into an exit wound, goes into President, so it comes in President, the back of Kennedy's neck, supposedly, out the front of his neck, it hits Governor Conley in the back, breaks some ribs as, as it's going through, comes out of his chest, enters his wrist, breaks some wrist bone, and then ultimately lodges in his thigh and comes out in a pristine, no damaged condition. And this was the so-called magic bullet, the pristine bullet. Uh, and so when you put this together, it's clear that what's going on here is fraud there in the in the autopsy. Now, that's just one aspect of it. We could go into other aspects of it. Now, there's a great documentary that just came out on Paramount Plus that I would really recommend everybody to watch. It's fantastic. And it deals with this subject. It, it's um, called JFK. I forget what the exact title is. The Dallas Doctors. People can Google it and get gets there's good reviews online. Uh, just put Paramount Plus Kennedy Autopsy or Dallas Doctors. And they what the documentarians did is they pulled the Dallas doctors together or many of them and interviewed them individually and then collectively. And they established that there's no question that there was this huge exit size wound in the back of Kennedy's head. Now, why is that important? Well, because that means the shot comes in from the front and they were saying that it, it went in through his forehead and then exited in this big kind of like baseball sized hole. And then in the front, it's another frontal shot. Well, obviously that contradicts the official narrative, which says that all the shots were fired from the rear. So that's one of the instances of fraud. There are others. And um, now the, on the sneaking of the body in early, that was the, the reason they had to sneak the body in early into the Bethesda morgue was to hide the fact that there had been shots fired from the front. So as you point out, the official story, which is correct, is that the body was brought in in the huge Dallas casket at 8 p.m. into the Bethesda morgue. Now, now, this is a military facility. And, of course, the preliminary question is, what in the heck is the military doing performing an autopsy on the president's body? I mean, we live in a civilian country, and this wasn't a wartime you know, assassination. This is, a, this is just an assassination, a murder under Texas state law. Well, the, the Secret Service forced the body out of, forcibly carried the body out of Parkland, threatened to use deadly force on the Dallas County Medical Examiner, who was insisting on doing an autopsy. They would not permit him to do that. And they ultimately put the, the body in the hands of the military. So the, the, the evidence establishes that the body was brought in in a huge, big casket that was purchased in Dallas at 8 p.m. 
And that's in an after action report by Lieutenant Sam Bird, who was in charge of the honor guard that carried the casket in. Well, then the Assassination Records Review Board in the 1990s, which I previously mentioned, discovered the existence of a Marine sergeant named Roger Boygen, who delivered to the ARRB a copy of his after action report, stating that he had been on duty to provide security at the autopsy on Friday night, November 22nd, 63, and that during that time, a lightweight shipping casket had brought, brought in to the morgue at 6.35 p.m. Well, that lightweight shipping casket then is containing President Kennedy's body. The fact that it contained President Kennedy's body was corroborated by the enlisted men who carried that casket into the morgue, uh, including a man like David, Dennis David. And then there were others that said that President Kennedy's body was in a body bag. Uh, instead of the white sheets that it had been wrapped in in Dallas. So when you put all this evidence together, you've got two entries of the body into the morgue. And so that's how you know there's shenanigans that are taking place here, because you've got the secret entrance at 6.35 p.m. in the shipping casket, and then you've got the official entrance at 8 p.m. Now, what happened at, in that interim? That was where the two pathologists, um, James Humes and Jay Thornton Boswell, were doing shenanigans on the body to hide the fact that shots had been fired from the front. But just to say, I mean, with all of this evidence of uh, potential shenanigans, I want to be careful because I, I mean, you know, we're talking in legal terms uh, and, and fraud. Uh, I mean, is it not possible to... to to bring a court case against the, the, the government or, or, or forces that are trying to keep it concealed? Uh, well, the law, before you can bring a court case, the law requires what's called standing. A person has to have standing. He has to have some direct interest in a matter before the courts will hear the And the courts will hold that no individual has standing to bring this kind of action. Now, the this was the whole purpose of the JFK Records Act, that they were keeping a lot of these records secret, especially relating to the autopsy. And that was how the ARRB discovered the existence of Roger Boygen, the Marine sergeant. They also uncovered a secret memorandum from Gawler's funeral home, uh, which had done the autopsy, which had done the embalming and the funeral. They were the most prestigious funeral home in, in uh, Washington, D.C., they uncovered a memo stating that the bot that the body had been brought in in a shipping casket. Um, so that was the whole purpose of the JFK Records Act to get all these records released, and unfortunately, they still haven't been all released. Uh, but uh, there's a group that has filed a lawsuit uh, in federal district court just recently in the last several months. Um, I think it's the Mary Farrell Foundation that is over there trying to get this this law enforced but the question is is whether the judge is going to allow them to do that under the principle of standing ordinarily it can't be done so to answer your question no uh, uh, a an individual cannot do this um, and what's strange about this whole thing michael or one of the strange things is that one of the the aspects of the fraud was they had two separate brain examinations um one of which could not possibly have involved President Kennedy's brain. And this was one of the, the big facts that the ARRB staff uncovered. And now, unfortunately, when the law 
was enacted, the JFK Records Act, somebody slipped a provision into the law prohibiting the ARRB from investigating anything that they found. So they could they could get documents released and records released, but if they found fraud, they couldn't um, they couldn't investigate it. Well, this aspect of the um, the two brain exams, the ARRB. RB discovered that there was fraud here. You have two separate brain exams when the official story is there's only one brain exam. And the mainstream press actually reported this, which is very unusual because the mainstream press tries to avoid the Kennedy assassination like the plague. But the Washington Post and the Associated Press both reported this finding. So here was a time when you know you asked about can citizens do anything? Any investigative reporter could have gotten wind of this thing and and started interviewing the doctors and that were involved, the, the witnesses who were involved in these two brain exams, because here it is in the mainstream press. To my knowledge, not one single investigative reporter in the whole country went after the story, despite the fact that it was in the in the Associated Press and in the Washington Post. It was just dropped like a hot potato. Uh, so that, that there was an opportunity for citizens to do something without a lawsuit, as you were asking about, but there was an aversion to it. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Listeners, if you just joined us, we're uh, talking with to Jacob Hornberger. Uh, who is the uh, major JFK assassination uh, uh, hound, I guess you'd say, but also the founder and president of the Future Freedom Foundation, and uh, also a lot of background in uh, law. And uh, so he's also, we're talking about a couple of books that he's written. And uh, I, 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 Jacob, I, I'd like to talk about the other book you wrote, and it's called, or one of the other books, the most recent book, as, as a matter of fact, and it's called An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zapruder story. This is in reference to the man who snapped the footage that the whole world uh, pr- practically has been showing Kennedy's assassination. And you wrote it last year, and it was a response to a courageous woman, I suppose, uh, his granddaughter, who wrote a book about the film. And it was courageous because, uh, you say, that she had violated a family taboo with regard to discussing the film. Why is there a family taboo surrounding discussion of this very important film? What is at heart of it, do you think? Well, that's a fascinating question. And that's what got me uh, thinking about writing this book, that the granddaughter of of Alexander's, I mean, of Abraham Zabruder, her name is Alexandra Zabruder, wrote this book called 26 Seconds, detailing her exploration into, she didn't actually call it a taboo, she called it a code within the family, but it meets all the prerequisites of a taboo. She said that when she was growing up, it was prohibited from, well, not expressly prohibited, but the code was nobody talks about the Zabruder film. You just don't mention it in the family. And so she gets into her 40s or so and decides that she's going to confront this this family taboo. And the reason I considered it a courageous act is because whenever you have family taboos, there's a reason for it. There's something, some dark secret that usually lies behind these things. And um, sometimes 
people like to just keep that dark secret buried. And and she herself recognized this, that she didn't know where this was going to lead, that she did it with a lot of trepidation. Uh, she knew she'd get pushback from her family for daring to cross this line. And so she, so I, I commended her in my book for this uh, courage in facing this taboo. However, the reasons that she finally came up with in the taboo are so ridiculous that I decided, no, I'm not going to let things sit there. I'm going to write my book and show exactly why this taboo was there. And that was the thrust of my book, um, analyzing exactly how this taboo came into existence and why it came into existence. Now, the, the fraudulent autopsy establishes beyond a reasonable doubt that the military was part of this assassination. Again, that's because of the fraudulent autopsy. Although it's very possible that CIA officials were at that autopsy. There's, a, there's evidence indicating that there were men in suits there, very sinister looking men, and um, we don't know who they were. And there's also clear evidence that there were individuals in that room directing the pathologist what to do and what not to do. Uh, so it's very possible those were CIA officials, but we don't know. Um, but with respect to the Zabruder film, the purpose of my book is to show the CIA's involvement in this assassination beyond a reasonable doubt. And I believe I do that in the book. And the purpose of the book is to show that on the very weekend of the assassination, the CIA embarked on a course of conduct that was designed to come up with an altered fraudulent copy of the original Zabruder film. And so let, let me back up a minute. Abraham Zabruder was a Dallas businessman. Um, on, the, on the day of the assassination, he was an amateur filmmaker. He had a top-of-the-line Bell & Howell movie camera. He, he knew how to use this thing perfectly. He had taken home movies for years and years. And so he goes out to Dealey Plaza, where the assassination takes place, and he films the entire assassination. And uh, then he he realizes he has something in value. He decides that he's going to preserve it. He's going to sell it. He's, he thinks he's got a chance of making a lot of money. So he goes and gets the film developed at the local Kodak facility in Dallas. He goes and makes three copies of the film at another company called the Jameson Film Company. He returns to Kodak with his copies. This was an, a 16 millimeter film. 16 millimeter wide, he sl they slid it down the middle, which is standard, to convert it into two eight millimeter strips, which they then connect into a 25 foot long film strip. And the, the official story had always been that when he sold this film to Life Magazine on the Saturday morning of the assassination and given the film to Life Magazine, that the, that the film had always gone to Life magazine in, in his printing house in Chicago. My book details that that's not what happened. Actually, that when the film got to Chicago, it was diverted to, CIA, to the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C. And from there, we have shenanigans. You know... I, I I imagine if if it, assuming it was a conspiracy, which it, it's certainly beginning to look to be the case, uh, when they're they're plotting everything, they, they try to take every everything into consideration, and uh, with the introduction of this filmmaker, who I, I assume is not on the inside, and and the in potentials, I I would I would think that that might be an angle that they had not 
anticipated to begin with. And, and so all of these things, uh, in, including Life magazine and, and the, the, uh, the CIA, as you, you say, is trying to uh, hedge things in such a way so that it's no longer a threat. Is, is that the kind of sen sense that you have about it? Absolutely. I mean, you have to anticipate that in any sophisticated operation, especially an assassination of a U.S. president, things are not going to go perfectly well. Uh, there's things going to go wrong. And so you, you've got to have people on the ground and supervising the event to be able to adjust to circumstances that are taking place. Now, the, the, the way it was planned is in Dealey Plaza was brilliant because by this time, this was the end of the president's parade route. The, there were sparse crowds there. And then the, um, the camera car where all the professional photographers and videographers, that's usually in front of the president's car in a motorcade because they want to capture the president greeting the crowd and so forth. Well, this time they put the, that press car a few cars back in the motorcade to ensure that these photographers and videographers would not be there in Dealey Plaza. So you really just had amateurs there in Dealey Plaza taking photographs and film, and they immediately confiscated everybody's film. In fact, um, one of the guys that had his uh, film confiscated, Orville Nix, later said they, they gave me an altered copy uh, of my film. They deleted frames out of this copy. Well, Zabruder gets through this, this dragnet of confiscating films and, and photographs, and he takes the thing back to his office, and then he goes and gets these three uh, copies made. So they've got to figure out what are we going to do about this? And uh, so Zabruder negotiates a very sweet deal with Life magazine on Saturday morning um, that's worth about half a million dollars in today's dollars to sell the film rights, I mean, the print rights to Life Magazine. Well, Life Magazine, its publisher was a guy named C.D. Jackson, who just happened to be an asset of the CIA. This was one of the Cold War assets, part of what the, uh, the CIA called Operation Mockingbird, to convert journalism in the mainstream press into assets of the CIA to fight the Cold War against the communists. And C.D. Jackson was one of these premier uh, CIA assets. So uh, what, what ends up happening is that it's not difficult to get C.D. Jackson on grounds of national security to agree to the diversion of that film. So they divert the film to, to Washington, D.C. They take it to the National Photographic Interpretation Center, top secret CIA facility, and this didn't come out, Michael, till about, oh, 40 to 50 years after these events. Now, here, here's why people were always suspicious, though. The Zabruder film shows the back of Kennedy's head to be intact. And so if we go back to the Dallas doctors, you recall that they said, no, he had this massive exercised hole in the back of his head. But... And then the autopsy photograph shows the back of the head to be intact. So for all these decades, they were saying, oh, the Dallas doctors just imagined this wound. And they used the Zabruder film to confirm the authenticity of the photograph. Well, the people who believed the Dallas doctors were telling the truth always felt that the, there's something shenanigan going on, some shenanigans going on with this film. Well, about 
50 years after the assassination, a CIA official pops up who says, and this guy, his name is Dino Brugioni, and he is one of the most renowned CIA photographic experts in the world, in history. I mean, this guy is just renowned in the photographic world. And he discloses to this man, Douglas Horn, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and to another author named Peter Janney, that he received this film, the original Zabruder film, on Saturday night of the assassination, which that's how they learned that the CIA had diverted this film over to Washington. And Brugioni takes um, enlargement. He was there with two Secret Service agents or two agents that were uh, said they were Secret Service. As I detail in my book, I think they were more likely CIA. But he does blowups, and then they take the film away. Well, then on Sunday night, the film is brought back to national, the National Photographic Interpretation Center by another guy that's saying he's a Secret Service agent. He said his name was Bill Smith. And he stated, I brought the film from Hawkeye Works. Well, Hawkeye Works was a top secret CIA facility in Rochester, New York, that could do everything that Hollywood could do. Well, there'd be only one reason to take this film to Rochester, and that would be to produce an altered copy of it, which they could do. And I detail the experts in my book that have analyzed this and said, oh, yeah, this could easily be done in what was called an optical printer. And then these experts examined the film and said, oh, there's there's just a black patch painted on this altered copy on the back of his head. And they said there's no question that they could get by with this 50 years ago, but not today. The technology is too sophisticated. And uh, so that's that's how I detail the CIA's role in the in the fraudulent production of an altered copy of the film. But they had to they had to plan this whole thing on the fly because I it, the thought that they would plan this in advance would be incredible. I mean, they, they, it'd be it'd be very difficult to do. Thinking about uh, you know uh, Abraham Zapruder, because I'm assuming that he would have seen the whole film, and uh, then he would look at what's been produced, as you say, and that th there's been an alteration, and, and he would have known that. So I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if that that and combined with I don't know a potential threat, uh, maybe he was picked up by the lapels and say you're not going to talk about this or something like that. I mean, is that a because I, I think that also refers to the uh, the first book, the the Kennedy autopsy, that the they, they're not going to let anyone talk. Well, it, it sort of it's a little bit more sophisticated. That you see, he when he gave up possession of his film, he ultimately on Monday ended up selling everything to Life Magazine, the print rights and the film rights, which is very unusual because he ended up selling them for triple the amount, like about the equivalent of one and a half million dollars today. And he um, he, he delivers his, the print rights and the film rights to Life magazine on Monday. He never sees the film again for years. Uh, and so when they there's there's no way for him to compare the altered copy with the original. 
Now, Dino Brugioni, who I previously mentioned, Horn and Janney showed him the film that is today represented to be the original. And he saw the film and said, he saw the altered copy and said, no, 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 that is not the film I saw. Now, this guy is one of the most renowned photo analysts in history. He he was involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis, analyzing the, the film there on, on the nuclear missiles. He wrote books on photo fakery. I think that was one of his titles. And Eyeball to Eyeball was another book he wrote. I mean, this guy's renowned. You can Google his name. And he looked at the extant film, the film that today purports to be the original. And he says, no, no, no. That headshot involved multiple frames, not just one frame. And he says it actually showed brain matter or blood shooting straight up into the air. And he says that was the most striking part of the film. That He said, we kept watching over and over again. Well, that's not in the film. <clears throat> However, Zabruder never saw the original film again, except for many years later. And this is what happened, that when the the uh, Warren Commission lawyer in, interviewed Zabruder, they didn't show him the film. They showed him black and white photographs, muddy black and white photographs that are very difficult to, to uh, decipher, and said, do you identify this as your film? Well, it's really bizarre. I mean, why would you do this? It's just so weird. So Zabruder had to be very suspicious. And um, and because when you when you look at the even the muddied copies, you can tell that there's frames missing. If you're familiar with the original Zabruder film, like the wide turn that the limousine made onto Elm Street, that's been totally deleted in the altered copy. Zabruder had to have noticed that. And um, the other thing is that Life magazine published an article within about two weeks of the assassination stating that it was uh, by a guy named Abraham, I mean, um, Paul Mandel, who was one of their columnists. This guy was a renowned columnist for Life magazine. He writes a column that says that the, the way that Kennedy got that throat wound in the front of the neck was that the film shows him turning around and facing the school book depository when the shot rings out that hits him in the front of the neck. Well, the film showed no such thing. And Zabruder had to know that. And Zabruder was a huge fan of Life magazine. So there is no reasonable possibility that he could have missed this article. And so now here, the man's been paid the equivalent of a million and a half dollars. And he, re and, oh, I, I should also mention that Life magazine announced right after buying the film and the print rights and the, and the film rights, that they were never going to show it as a film, that they were just going to keep it sequestered. They said that according to Alexandra Zabruder and her film, that they felt that the American people were not ready for violence, uh, to watch this kind of violence. And so uh, Life Magazine was going to do what they considered a, a service to the American people by keeping this film sequestered forever, permanently. Nobody was going to ever be able to watch this film. Um, and so Zabruder had to know they were lying. And that was when he was faced with a choice. Does he does he object? Does he does he go and say that you all are lying about this? And that that is where I say the taboo starts to be established in the in the family that he knows this is a lie. And but he decides he's got to stay quiet because he knew that they would come after him with all guns blaring if he started questioning the official narrative, which they've always done to everybody who questions the official narrative. And the fact that he was Jewish also 
must have um, affected his decision because of the massive anti-Semitism that that was was in the South at the time. And um, he had grown up in poverty in, in Russia. And there was just no way that he was going to take on the full national security establishment in the U.S. government but by becoming uh, what they call it, what they smear as a conspiracy theorist. And therefore, he he they had to stop talking about the film because he might disclose the truth behind this film. Now, several years later, he was in a trial in New Orleans, and this was a criminal prosecution that was brought by the district attorney of New Orleans, Jim Garrison, against a man named Clay Shaw, where Garrison was alleging that the assassination was a national security state regime change operation. In fact, Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, is based on this criminal prosecution. And they they brought Zabruder in to, to identify the film, which was a copy. They had subpoenaed the film. Life magazine had resisted. And the judge had ordered, no, you've got to produce the film. Well, they produced a copy. And at this was the first time the Bruder had seen his film. This was in around 1968, 69. First time he had seen the film since 63. And the he's asked, is this an accurate depiction of your film? Is this your film? And his answer was very, very revealing. He says, well, there could be frames missing. I can't, I can't tell you there's not frames missing. Or, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his language. But he hedged. And he referred to missing frames, the possibility of missing frames, which indicates that he knew exactly that he was that he was dealing with a force that was much larger than him and his wife, uh, Lillian. Uh, they were just not going to take on this um, this notion that this film hit. This was an altered copy of the film. And that's where I argue in my book is where this taboo came into existence. Wow. I mean, this is a, a really a fascinating dynamic of this uh, Kennedy assassination, uh, even among people who uh, are not uh, d who know all sorts of things about uh, Oswald and, and the autopsy and things. But, you know, this Zapruder film, which is, uh, you know, that that's in everybody's memory. And yet they didn't know very much about it. I, I understand this is probably your favorite book that you've written. Well, it really is, um, because I, I believe it's it, it does establish beyond a reasonable doubt the CIA's role in this, because like just like there's no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy, I will guarantee you there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent film. I mean, it automatically means criminal culpability in the assassination itself. When you're when you're fraud when you're producing a fraudulent copy of a film, there is no way to innocently explain that. And Interestingly enough, the CIA has never tried to explain what was going on here. They certainly have not released any of the records relating to what happened at the National Photographic Interpretation Center or in Rochester. Uh, they've, they've continued to keep all that secret, which which indicates to me that, that the cover-up continues. Okay, well, we're sort of coming to at the end of our time, but I wanted to get your sense, like, you know, with the 60-year uh, since 60 years since Kennedy's assassination has taken place. And I, I was wondering why, why have even the, uh, the JFK assassination skeptics who say it was a conspiracy, uh, you know, they seem hesitant to consider LBJ as, as one of the uh, conspirators. Um, I, I'm wondering where you think, 
where, where, where do you think researchers and activists should aim their efforts at this point in time, 60 years later? I mean, especially when the threat of a nuclear war is as high now as it, as it was in the early 60s, actually higher. Yeah, that's a fascinating question, because obviously everybody that was involved in this is dead and, and nobody's going to be brought to justice for it. So why pursue it? Is it just a matter of historical interest? And and I argue no. Um, I argue at the Future of Freedom Foundation, I've, I've long argued that the greatest mistake this country ever made was to convert the federal government into what is called a national security state. This this is a form of governmental structure that is a totalitarian-like governmental structure with dark side omnipotent powers, including the power of assassination. That was not our original founding governmental system. Our original system was a limited government republic where the government doesn't have the power of assassination, doesn't have the these dark side powers of torture, indefinite detention, and the like. And their powers are very limited. And it is this structure that, that the American people have to challenge today, that it's not just a matter of historical interest, this assassination, it's that we live under a system where the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA wield this power of assassination. If another president gets out of line or they consider he's out of line, they wield the power to assassinate him. And it's it's a non-reviewable power. The courts will not get involved. We have other instances of assassination that are really not disputable, like the CIA's orchestrating the assassination of Patrice Lumumba or Fidel Castro or General Rene Schneider in Chile. And the courts will not do anything about these assassinations. And so a domestic regime change operation is going to be treated no differently. So if you want a free society, a genuinely free society, you got to get rid of the national security state. And that's the real lesson here, Michael, of this, this assassination. Uh, it's that it is this structure that gave them carte blanche to do what they felt was uh, eliminating a threat to national security. That That's why they eliminated Kennedy. It's not because they hated him or personal reasons or whatever, or because they wanted Nixon instead. They convinced themselves that Kennedy's policies were a grave threat to national security, and they they perceived their job is to protect national security against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that includes domestic enemies. And that's why the governmental structure is so horrendous. It's it's essentially a trump card on democracy that you don't let the voters make this decision. It's the national security establishment that makes the decision. Okay. Jacob Hornberger, it's been a real treat listening to you and uh, you know, hearing your views. It's even taking some JFK uh, assassination buffs uh, by surprise. But uh, thank you, on, especially on this uh, uh, special occasion. Uh, we'll be uh, monitoring it uh, on an ongoing basis. Thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Michael. Jacob Hornberger is uh, founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. So we have had other noteworthy investigators come on this program to speak about Kennedy's assassination. There was Jim DiEugenio, who was on last year at this time, as well as in the summer of 2021. He was also working on the scripts that Oliver Stone relied on for his latest movie on JFK. And we also had... James Douglas, uh, author of JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. 
Uh, he was a theologian and a Catholic worker who wrote about how JFK was essentially a cold warrior turned peacemaker and how that ran up against the various other figures who wanted to the war to continue. That was broadcast in November of 2017. So I wanted to run through an interesting factoid that could be of interest to listeners, especially those who maintain skepticism that Lee Harvey Oswald was not the lone gunman. Shaitanya Dave is an engineer and a businessman, and author of many articles on politics, history, and the environment. And he points out the following in a recent article. He says, At least 33 of the many JFK assassination-related witnesses died unnaturally within three years of the assassination. As Richard Blazer and David Wayne write in their book, Hit List, all the witnesses who spoke out or were to testify to Warren Commission or to Jim Garrison, the New Orleans Attorney General, and whose testimony will prove the existence of conspiracy, related to the Kennedy assassination and the conspiracy, were mysteriously murdered or were killed in an accident. The authors point out that according to an actuary hired by London Sunday Times, odds of 18 material witnesses dying within three years of the assassination were 100,000 trillion to one. In reality, many more witnesses who had the critical information regarding the conspiracy mysteriously died or were killed. So, it's highly improbable, but it's still possible, I guess. <laughs> but the Kennedy assassination radically shifted the politics of the U.S., as had the U.S. overthrow of Iran in 1953, uh, the, uh, or of Guatemala in 1954, of Congo in 1961, and of Chile in 1973. These currents, as part of history, need to be explored and exposed in order to not to keep repeating the horrors of the past so they will not be repeated in the future. That's our show for this week. Next week, we will address the horrors of the past pandemic and the possibility of another pandemic. We hope you will join us then. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.